Welcome to Spelunking with Plato, a podcast devoted to conversations about liberal education, hosted by the University of St. Thomas's School of Arts and Sciences. Here, students and faculty are called through the light of faith and the Catholic intellectual tradition to ascend from Plato's cave, bringing others with them to a vision of the good and the life of human flourishing. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome to the program Professor Elizabeth Corey from Baylor University. She's the Honors Program Director and Associate Professor of Political Science in the Honors Program. She earned her PhD and an MA in Political Science from Louisiana State University and studied at the University of Heidelberg. She also received an MA in Art History from LSU and a BA in Classics from Oberlin. She's taught courses at Baylor on Political Science, Great Texts, and in the Baylor Interdisciplinary Corps. She's earned many awards over the years for research and teaching. Um, and was the 2016-2017 Robert Novak Journalism Fellow. Her book, Michael Oakeshott on Religion, Aesthetics, and Politics, was published in 2006. She also writes for First Things and serves on the board of the Institute on Religion and Public Life. I think that's where I first read some of your work, uh, was in First Things. She's also published in The Atlantic, The Chronicle of Higher Education, National Affairs, The Wall Street Journal, and in a variety of scholarly journals. Professor Corey was also the American Enterprise Institute's Values and Capitalism Visiting Professor in 2018-19. Um, an excellent way to, uh, to begin considering her work on liberal education is to an interview she did with Margarita Mooney that was published in The Love of Learning, Seven Dialogues on the Liberal Arts. And this volume was published by Clooney Media. Um, and as I, I mentioned previously, we, uh, I think we met uh, in person at a, a First Things Retreat at UCLA a number of years ago. You were giving a, a keynote address um, one evening, and we've been, I think, discussing music and liberal education ever since. So it's a great pleasure to have you here today. Um, I, I was wondering if we could perhaps begin um, with an author that you know a great deal about um, and have, have reflected on a great deal, um, and that's Michael Oakeshott. Um, there's a collection of his essays called The Voice of Liberal Learning that I bought a number of years ago, but had the occasion to read uh, more recently. Um, and I, I, I think it's a very um, distinctive view of what liberal education is about. Um, could you say a bit about Michael Oakeshott and then what his vision of liberal learning is? Sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to do that. Um, Oakeshott, for those of you who are not familiar with him, which is probably too many people, uh, was born in 1901 in England, died in 1990. He was professor of uh, political philosophy at, um, at London School of Economics for many years, had many, many students uh, who loved him and went on to write about his work and, and uh, share his vision of the world. He, he was a political philosopher, but he was a deeply humane person. He read widely and everything. Um, he he left some notebooks behind, which have been recently published, and it is remarkable the breadth of, of his reading and his interests. He was concerned with many things besides politics. In a certain way, he was he, he was a political philosopher who didn't like politics much. He was much more interested in the life of the mind, in uh, a leisured life, in considering poetry and philosophy uh, and, and death and love and all these major important life issues for it, for anyone. Um, and, but he thought he had to consider politics as well. And he did at, at some length and, and in two um, really important books. But his aim was to carve out a place for the pursuits that might be understood as ends in themselves, like leisure, love, contemplation, friendship, 
um, the appreciation of music, all these things that he thought were deeply humane. And politics shouldn't interfere in those things. So he, he had a kind of limited view of politics where um, the and, and it's it's one we do not have in the pre, in present day America that that politics should stay out of many questions. Uh, we should understand uh, pol the political world as a kind of umpire governing laws, but not enforcing uh, or but not not pursuing substantive purposes. So it's a, he's very much a defender of the rule of law and of a kind of minimalist politics to the extent we could have that. So that's why, uh, you know, I love him. But many people think, well, this is this is completely unworkable in the modern world because politics is war and we need to be constantly preparing for war, even if we're not fighting. And he would have had he would have had very little sympathy with that view. So so that's a, just a really brief overview of, of sure. my website. Yeah, well, and you, I'm, and we'll, in the show notes, we'll put a link up uh, to an essay you wrote for public discourse recently. Um, and um, and so for those who want to want a good introductory uh, place to start. Um, they can they can go there to find out more. Um, yeah, in light of all of that, um, the Michael Oakeshott vision of liberal education. I mean, it, it it bringing those values to bear on the life of the mind, the life of learning. What does that look like? What is what is his vision of liberal education look like? Well, it's quite radical in our world. It is, you know, and, and some people say, well, it's it's not attainable. We must constantly be concerned with things that are outside the life of the mind. We need to be concerned with our uh, with social justice, first and foremost, for some people. We need to be concerned with career and we need to be concerned with, um, you know, all the things that sort of lurk around our ordinary daily life. And if we don't attend to them, we'll be in trouble. Oakeshott would say, actually, you need to attend to the things that are in a way, you know, to use Russell Kirk's phrase, the permanent things. And he thought those those things were that list I just gave of, of the things valuable in themselves. And he thought that the world of work uh, would would com constantly infringe on on the on the ability of us, of our ability to uh, to do the things that we we recognize at certain times to be worthy uh, of doing, like like the like contemplation. So in other words, he he thought university education was an interval during which students ought to set aside politics and set aside career and set aside all the things that they brought with him to school and engage in reading and thinking and conversation. His One of his biggest and, and most widely um, quoted images is the voice of conversation uh, or the voice of poetry in the conversation of mankind. And his image uh, is that we are constantly as a civilization engaged in conversation where there's a voice of science, there's a voice of history, there's a voice of poetry. But that poetry and contemplation is constantly crowded out by all the other voices, which are more insistent and louder and much more practical. He actually thought the practical mode was the most uh, insistent of all. And of course, he's right mm. about that. But he wanted to carve right. out a place for for uh, for learning as an in itself. Right. Well, and that's that's yeah, that, that's that's interesting. And it, it reminds me a bit about McIntyre's concept of the in, you know, practices that have their end within themselves, kind of their internal telos. Because um, when I first was reading this this uh, volume of essays, one of the things I, that struck me was he's rather, he, sp he speaks rather strongly against um, what you might call a well-defined telos and a well-defined nature, human nature. I mean, he's it, these things are much more contingent, much more historical. Um, he's, he has a much more modest approach um, rather than making these strong anthropological claims, strong teleological claims. Um, I mean, is that that your understanding? Is he really is is taking a very you know big step back away from those kinds of assertions? 
I do think he is. And that that actually offends a lot of people or not offends them, but they they think, well, that's I, I don't like the idea that Oakshot would say there's no such thing as human nature. And I think what he's trying to say there is that human nature, as some philosophers talk about it, often means that the certain choices and tendencies are sort of pre, pre-established for human beings. And Oakeshott was a great defender of the freedom of individuals to figure out for themselves who they are. And so when he says there's no such thing as human nature, he, he then goes on to say something like, there are only human beings uh, making their way in the world, making choices for themselves, uh, and, and doing what he calls self-enactment. In other words, figuring out who they want to be through various um, ways of being, uh, which are either, you know, prideful or humble, um, contemplative or uh, not contemplative. I mean, that he's he's leaving a lot of of sort of the pro- the practice of being a human being up to up to an individual to figure out for himself, which is uh, it can go too far. I think it can it become a come a it can become a kind of um, solipsistic individualism. But I don't think he he wants it to go that far. He he's also a great defender of history and of practices and of traditions. Right. I mean, in that sense, he's almost Burkean, although I, I think he diverges from Burke in some significant ways. He's He wants us to learn who we are, but not in a vacuum. He wants us to see, you know, we've come out of a variety of practices. We come out of a family. We come out of a, of a religion in most cases. And we can't find ourselves except in those contexts. Right. Well, in what I think one might, one might in his support, um, even if, if, if I'm speaking for myself, I, you know, I, I think, um, if I'm inclined to, to want there to be stronger anthropological claims or teleological claims to the project of liberal education or the, that activity, just under the conditions that Oakshot establishes of, of, of sort of, um, you know, humane <laughs> contemplation, um, it's within though, within that space that he, he, I think insists we, we have to create within that a, a student can begin to intuit um, what it is that makes him or her human and, and what, what purposes might exist for a human life. So without being asserted by the teacher or asserted by Oakshot or anybody else, those kind of things can come, come to the surface and be, uh, and be realized. Um, so he, even if, even if he doesn't go where you might want him to go, <laughs> he, we, we begin in the same place and within the space he, he creates, those things are still possible. Um, so yeah, that, right. yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm interested in these, these modes. Um, and, um, I was thinking about Newman throughout much of my reading of Oakshot and, um, where they might agree and might, might disagree. And I'm wondering, you mentioned the, the modes of, you know, uh, history and science and practice and then the aesthetic, um, dimension, um, is, is the university really the place where all of those come together? Um, in a kind of musical synthesis, how would you describe the way that those those work, um, you know, either in life or it, or within within the realm of learning? Yeah, I think in in a way, the university is the only place they all come together. He he has a book called Experience and Its Modes, and it was one of his first books he wrote when he was a, a very young man, and he set out several modes. He set out the mode of history, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, he set out the mode of science and he set out the mode of practice. He did not set out the mode of poetry or contemplation. That was only to come later. But history was for him a way of seeing the world in historical terms. So <clears throat> you could see uh, an example I often use is you could see uh, a, a water bottle as the um, 
the the modern version of the Thracian drinking horn. I mean, if you right. if you think of it in that way, that's what it is. It is it is a conveyance for bringing water to our mouths, but it it has a long history. If you approach it in a in a scientific way, you're going to investigate what's the nature of the plastic that happens to be the uh, the water bottle itself, and how did that come about, and, and what is it, and um, how, how do chemists find it, and what are those chemicals, and all that sort of those sorts of inquiries. In the mode of practice, we see it as something we use to quench our thirst. We have the bottle holding water to quench our thirst. Now, that's just a kind of brief, very almost silly way of explaining the modes. But in the university, you can understand there are there is the voice of science, which asks certain questions about the world. There is the voice of history, which asks, asks certain other questions about the world. Um, the practical mode uh, is is there in the university. I mean, it's there in in uh Places like social work and fashion design and all the all the sort of more somewhat practical um, studies that you might undertake at a university. So, in Oakshot's ideal, these are these voices are actually talking with one another. In reality, as uh, George and I know, it's very often the case that we're not talking with each other. So we we liberal arts people talk amongst ourselves. The scientists talk amongst sure. themselves, and we're all often these little silos. But Oakshot's ideal was a world that allowed those conversations to happen amongst people who are broadly interested in more than their own voice. And I think that's that to the extent we can still do that uh, in some ways, and we do in, in universities in various ways, that's a very good thing. Right. Right. Well, and that, that's, that's, that's helpful. I, you know, I was, I was intrigued also when I was looking at this, that, you know, he, he tends to um, have a rather dim view of the social sciences <laughs> as a member of, of this this conversation. W what accounts for that? How do you understand his his uh, approach and maybe perhaps distrust of the social sciences? Well, you know, I think he was part of that mid-century world of people like Vogelin and Strauss who were all really concerned about behaviorism and, and the idea that you're just going to reduce human beings to a bunch of data points and, um, right. you know, sort of social, social psychological measurements that you then use and manipulate. Uh, he, he was, he was defending against this, this scientization, if you can use it, right. the word in that way, uh, making everything into, to quantifiable data points. And he said, that is absolutely a, a terrible thing to do to human beings and to the human sciences. So he's, he's fighting against that in a way that I don't think we feel maybe quite as, um, quite as acutely as he did then. I think, Though he would feel like I sort of the, the world of identity politics where, you know, identity is subsumed in categories um, like race and sex and sexual orientation and so on is a, is a similar kind of reduction of human experience to things that are not chosen by actual human beings. And he would see that as a as a real as a real problem for, for understanding ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, in addition to identifying sort of potential problems within the various disciplinary families that come together. I, I was also, I confess, intrigued by some of um, what he said to say about uh, sort of the obstacles that, that you know, the circumstances that are not, he, I think he says, the, the circumstances for liberal learning that existed in the past, um, uh, they don't all exist now. And in spite of his, what I would describe as a kind of cheerfulness, a kind of humility and cheerfulness, people talk about that as part of his, his, yeah. his makeup and presentation, which I find very attractive. Interestingly, I don't tend to associate those things with Hobbes, which he's th thought of, he's often linked with Hobbes. So I, I don't think of cheerfulness and uh, humility as part of that, but uh, um, I'll, I'll take the scholar's uh, word for it. Um, but there were a couple of things he said that um, 
as there were potential blocks to um, the, the activity of liberal learning. One way he described as a ceaseless, ceaseless flow of seductive trivialities, um, which neither invoke reflection nor choice, but instant participation. And this was written long before the age of social media. Um, and then he also spoke of uh, uh, the world has but one language, soon learned the language of appetite. Um, and uh, which is, then he describes a language of composed of meaningless cliches. Um, you want to speak to that? I mean, what, what do you think he would make of, do you think he would just double down on these, this assessment today? Or would he, would he elaborate it in different ways in light of the challenges we're facing now in the classroom and outside of it? You know, it's very funny to read those things and think he was writing in the 60s and 70s. I think the right. thing he was most upset about was television. Okay. <laughs> you know, and he thought, well, you know, one day there will be these screens that come into our lives and pre pretend to teach us through these screens. And we will have a monitor that will um, respond to our every um, every wish and keystroke and and they will they will replace teachers. I mean, he was saying this as a kind of joke. And if he were to come back now and see uh, see our situation, I I dare say he would just throw up his hand in despair. I mean, I, I do think the the idea that uh, the modern world offered all sorts of seductive trivialities was true in his day, but it's so much more true in, in ours. And and to the to the extent that you know leisure was difficult in 1972, it's so much more difficult now because we cannot get away from our electronics. I, I do think he would find. I, I don't think he would necessarily be surprised, but I think he would see it, you know, the, the difficulties he faced 50 years ago as being almost insurmountable now. And they, and they are, they're really, really hard uh, for, for us. And especially for those we're teaching um, at the moment. So no, I mean, I, I think he would see it as a continuum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and that, and that's, so, and, and, but, and you still think he would be just as cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> in the face of this, or I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of actually, there's an essay by, by Lewis, C.S. Lewis, that talks about um, what it's like to do evangelization or evangelism in a world that is post-Christian. And that's the closest I think Lewis ever comes to despair. He's, he's much more hopeful about the pagans and mm -hmm. their capacity to receive, you know, uh, you know, Christianity or, or Christians to be, you know, to be uh, renewed in their faith. But when you get to the point of a post-Christian society, Lewis kind of runs out of ideas and he, it's, it's sort of like, I'm not sure what to do at this point because we're not pagans. We're not Christians. What, what's, what's next. And I, I do wonder, you know, uh, what, yeah, what, what is it simply a matter of, of, of reconstituting our, our communities, reconstituting the conversation, um, and, and, you know, just sort of working extra hard to create that space for silence. And, and because I love his images of, of the conversation or the invitation or, um, you know, the, these images he uses for what liberal learning is. Um, yeah, try, trying to, I'm trying, I guess I'm, tr I'm trying to find a way to cultivate the cheerfulness that he himself seems to embody <laughs> in the face of all the yeah, challenges but, that we, we, okay, we have now. That's, that's very interesting. And so let me, let me counter with a different Lewis essay okay. or with actually two different Lewis essays. And they're among my favorites. And I think they're quite Oakshadian. One is the, um, it's, it was a lecture or a, a sermon he gave. Um, it's titled often learning in wartime. Right. And then there's another that you probably know, life in the atomic age or something yeah, along, yeah. something along yeah. those lines. But in both of those places, Lewis says, look, life is crazy. It always has been. It was, right. you know, even in the times that we thought were most calm, they, there was all sorts of disorder and chaos. Nevertheless, people have always found the 
interest in and ability to do the things that are really intrinsically meaningful in the in in light of all this stuff that's going on. I mean, the learning in wartime is is right right during the Second right. World War. I mean, how can you right. justify going to school when your country is at war? So I think Oakeshott probably sympathized with that view that look, the world is always chaotic, the world is always in, in a in disorder. And nevertheless, human beings do have a desire to know and and want to pursue that uh, in the midst of the disorder. And, and some will do it. And it is those I mean, I don't want to be too dramatic here, but the, those of us who've got got the light, you know, or carrying the torch need to keep keep carrying it and pass it to the next generation. So in that sense, I think you can you can see the see the, the, the disorder and and all the terrible things that go on in any given society and say there there is still hope. To be had. I suppose that's why, you know, as opposed to so many, especially conservatives in the present day, I am actually not optimistic, but but hopeful that that this is a project that will will still go on. There are people who want this. I see these and I see this in my students every single semester. Right. Well, and, and I think this this idea that, and again, to sort of go back to a, the anthropological question, if 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 the need for wisdom, the desire for goodness and, and beauty, if these things are hardwired into us at some level, then we're gonna we're gonna keep seeking these things out. And as long as there are teachers who are willing to to engage with this, um, liberal learning will always be reborn. Um, and I think I often think of our institutions that you know while we're building on one side of the house, other people are on the other side, sort of you know messing it up, and you got to go over there and build on the other side. And it's a process that never really ends, right? You, you'll never get the whole thing built up the way you want it, but you just you just don't stop. And um, I'm sure I there's a pathological. Let me say also to that point. I mean, you you strike on something that is real. I think is really important in the present day. I mean, there there is so much lamenting. And so much sort of criticism of the status quo, which is often quite right. But unless this is, reminds me of Yuval Levin's book, um, A Time to Build. Yeah. I mean, there's there's something deeply right about that, that uh, if we just lament and lament and think, well, things were so much better back when we will not get around to doing the things that will actually be helpful and constructive for the people who are here now. And it is our obligation, right. especially as conservatives who want to conserve things. And I am a conservative. Um to, to do that building. And even if it's not, you know, if, even if we don't accomplish what we hope we might accomplish, at least we have contributed in that way, um, right. to, to something good. Yeah. Always be building, always be teaching, always be reading and always be building. Um, I think, I think Tony right. Eslin, uh, he would always say that, you know, start, start a journal, you know, start an institution, yes. build up the one you're in, yes. you know, just, you can't, you just don't give up. Just it's, it's, um, you just have to keep, keep going. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in, um, uh, two other, well, a couple of other ideas that you mentioned in your essay that you wrote for um, uh, uh, public discourse. And I'm, I'm thinking about how these things might work out in a, inside a university. Um, you, this was under the heading, I think, in this essay, individual freedom. And you talk about self-disclosure and self-enactment. Could you say a bit about those concepts? And then, you know, do, do these concepts have an impinge in any way on, on our work of liberal education? Yeah, I mean, Oakeshott uses these terms in his book on human conduct in the first essay, where he talks about what is what is moral conduct, and he more or less says there are two primary ways we we are in the world, and one of them is he calls self disclosure, which is doing things with expected responses from other people. So you disclose yourself uh, in the expectation that someone else is going to respond to you in a certain way. I mean, it, it, this is most of the ordinary moral life. You know, you you uh, you're trustworthy. 
I mean, I hope one is tr trustworthy for all sorts of other reasons, but you're trustworthy because you understand that that's, that's what people expect of you. You uh, complete your responsibilities because you know that that's, that's what you, um, you need to do. Uh, you, you, uh, I suppose you can also be untrustworthy and you can, I mean, you can make these choices to, to disclose yourself in ways that are negative, but, but all of it depends on responses from other people. Um, and you contrast this with self-enactment, which is, uh, action and thought about oneself in terms of what it means to, to you. So his hope is that if you enact yourself as an honest person, that you're not doing it solely because you have to, or society tells you you have to, or that you expect to get something from it, but that's the kind of person you truly want to be and to become. And so he says, ultimately, the self-enactment is a kind of poetic making of a self through the things you do and think and and learn. And, and learning is a huge part of self-enactment. I mean, it's one thing to talk about self-enactment, you know, as a child, you don't know a lot, but he thinks that in the, in the terms of self-enactment, he wants to propose you, you've got a kind of rich historical sense of what a human life might be. And you get that by, by learning about the world and you can be a much richer, more interesting uh, actor, um, you can enact yourself much more richly the more you know of that tradition and the more you have thought about opportunities to to be an interesting and moral person. So he thinks ultimately, I think, I mean, self self-disclosure and self-enactment are really two sides of, of the same action. How 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 you're doing something in terms of how others perceive it and then how you're doing something in terms of how you think about yourself. Uh, but I think yeah. those I mean, liberal education is a vital part of both and especially of the self-enactment part. Yeah. Because it seems like the classroom in which you're you're reading, you mentioned the Odyssey earlier, in which you're reading and discussing the Odyssey, um, you know, that's that's an opportunity to um, within that context to to sort of reflect on um, those, you know, the, the, all the things that go along with self disclosure, but also at another level, as you mentioned earlier, also to sort of think about, you know, how am I going to live? How am I going to enact this? And uh, I, I do wonder, um, I mean, there's a tension, it seems, um, I'm thinking of some conversations we had um, here um, earlier um, as the semester was starting, just before the semester was starting. I think it was with some um, um, advisors for our freshman um, colloquium, our experience, the, sort of the, the first year experience that they have. Um, you know, so much of, at least in contemporary higher education, it's all about, um, it can often seem like it's all about discovering who you are and, and performing who you are. Um, but that often is done almost in a vacuum. <laughs> so you're not actually drawing any kind of tradition. You're not actually drawing on any givens or any, um, any, any, any context. It's just, you look inside and it's, it's sort of a blank, almost a blank space, except, and, but you, and you just make, you make yourself into who you, who you want. And any sort of dependence on a, a tradition, any sort of dependence on a given is some way, in some ways to use the language inauthentic if you will. But it seems like by Mo yes. Oakshot, by bringing these things together, creates a way to do both of those very necessary things. I mean, I don't know what it's like at Baylor. Is that, is, does that make sense? What I'm, what I I'm think saying? that's right. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't have quite that language of, uh, in, in the first year experience courses, but, but certainly, um, Oakshot is not saying you, you know, you arrive at college at 18 and look inward and figure it all out and, you know, do what you feel or do what you like. I mean, right. it's, he's, he's very much, um, aware of the, the, the appetites and the desires are 
certainly a part of self-disclosure and self-enactment, but they must be, he's, he's, he's platonic enough to know they must be governed. Uh, they must be ordered toward, toward things that are good. And in that sense, right. I mean, he, he's, he's kind of depending on the classic philosophy, uh, the classical philosophers. I mean, I would also say that, um, Oakeshott was not a traditional or orthodox Christian. He was as a young man, and then he sort of lost his faith, but he's always got this residue of, of, of Christianity about him. I think it's perfectly possible to be an Oakeshottian in the way that I take myself to be, and also sure. to be a, a deeply committed Christian. Um, this self-enactment doesn't mean that you cannot have richer sort of teleological and and um, even eschatological views. It, it, sure. it is true... Uh, it can be true that one is a Christian and yet nevertheless in, engages in self-enactment in Oakshadian terms. Yeah. So um, it, I, I think it, you, people should not think, well, because Oakshad wasn't himself a Christian, he's, he's not a Christian philosopher. Well, he's not a Christian philosopher in the sense sure. that many people are, but he's um, he's giving us a project that I think can, can go alongside um, pursuing uh, the Orthodox Christian life. Well, and I, I think, I think, I mean, I, that was my sense when I was, when I was reading him was that this, um, this, again, this combination of, um, kind of cheerfulness and humility, he leaves the space open. So, um, you can, you can, you can bring in these commitments, um, um, and, uh, in a way, as long as you're polite about them, <laughs> you know, you're allowed, you're allowed to bring these things to the conversation. So he's not ruling them out, uh, uh you know, at the, at the beginning. So, um, yeah, I, th I, I, that was my sense is that he may not be making these assertions or these claims, um, but there's definitely room, room for them. And I don't, and also not in a way that's, um, uh, that's kind of relativizing, I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's like, we're going to take this, but on the condition that we all know that it's just really your opinion. He actually, I think is, a lot, it seems to make, make room for these, these, these kind of claims that, that guide one's life, um, in important ways. Um, I, there was one other, one of the things I was hoping to just ask you about real quickly. And that I was intrigued by also in this essay, this question about the different kinds of associations. Um, you know, you mentioned, um, the enterprise association and the civil association as, as coming from Oakshot. And I, I found myself asking, which one of, of these sorts is a university or is it both of them together? Can you say a bit about the two kinds of associations and then where, where the university fits into this, this scheme? Yes, that's a great question. The civil association, again, he loves to work in ideal types and he often works in kind of contrasting ideal types. And um, I, I talked about self-disclosure and self-enactment, but he, he also has the notion of two different realms of politics, which actually kind of can map onto many other realms of life as well. One is enterprise association and one is civil association. And the enterprise association is what we're most familiar with, a group of people getting together to do something, to build a house, um, you know, to sail a boat, to uh, run a university perhaps, right. um, to run a business for sure. And and that is, it's the, the end is very clear and we all know what we're up to and there are rules that govern our association and this is what we do. And that this is really quite familiar to us. The civil association, on the other hand, is a group of people who are associating not, not for a, a single easily definable purpose. The, the association of people as, as he calls it, key ways, um, civil, civil associators is to say that we, we associate, um, in order to know one another and in order to, to converse with each other and to be, I mean, the, I think the relationship of neighborliness might be a lot mm. uh, of the civil association he's talking about, where you just sort of find yourself uh, plunked down in a neighborhood with 
a bunch of other people who you haven't chosen, and yet you must associate, or you hope that you do associate in a way that um, that brings certain goods with it, like neighborliness and kindness and conversation and care for the other. Uh, and so the, it's a great question. What is a university? Is it is it a civil association where uh, there's some general rules governing it, but no 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 teleological purpose, uh, or is it an enterprise association? And I think, as George, you will know well, many universities are now enterprise associations. The goal is to uh, increase the the U.S. News and World Report ranking and to place students in lucrative careers and prestigious graduate programs, and to do all these sorts of things that are our goals, put them in Fulbrights and Rhodes and Marshall right. scholarships. I mean, there are lots of ends of a university, but I think Oakshot would want us to think of a university as a, as a kind of enterprise, uh, excuse me, as a kind of civil association where you're all brought together for a time to converse. It's right. a, it's a supremely civilized vision of, of what a university is about. Not only the students converse, but the professors converse with one another. And you're understood as a community that is, if it has an aim, it's at liberal learning, but even that is not, it's not a, it, it's not as if you can have a checklist of liberal learning and come right. out at the end. Well, this guy is liberally learned and this one is not. So I, I think, um, I think ideally hmm. he would see uh, a university as a church, as, as a kind of civil, um, civil association, but, yeah. um, but it's increasingly not. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if sometimes the the um, I'm sure this doesn't obtain at Baylor in any way, but you know, at some institutions, um, there there can be quite a bit of tension between the administrative side of the house and the teaching scholarly side of the house. And I wonder to what extent it's because of these competing visions. You know, there, there's on one side is really thinking about it in terms of an enterprise, and one is a civil. But even today, I mean, later on today, we're gonna we're gonna inaugurate a new gathering of faculty. Um, we're calling it Coffee with Aquinas. And it's just an informal hour for people from across the university to come together. We're going to read some Joseph Pieper. I've got a page we're going to read um, on, on the virtues. Um, and what I see happening is there's even inside an institution that has very clear enterprise goals, there is a constant desire to build um, these these other kinds these other kinds of civil associations within it, and and almost as if yes. you know that and and I don't know to what extent that what that dance looks like exactly, but the inter, within the enterprise we're going to create smaller civil associations that we hope will then renew and rehumanize the larger enterprise association. I, I don't know if that if that yeah. ever happens in other. That's places. a really beautiful way of putting it. I I love what you say. It doesn't happen often enough in universities, but I had the experience of of doing this last year. Uh, my dean put together a group of uh, of, of us. It, it was a, across the university: religion, political science, English, um, theology. Everybody who had a kind of interest in the humanities, and he, and he called it something like rejuvenating the humanities. Or mm. I, I can't remember exactly the title of it. But the point was for us to get together, have a common right. reading, eat dinner, and talk. And right. we actually got to know each other as people and not as just so-and-so over in the history department. Right. But it was it was wonderful and it was civilizing. And those things do, of course, exist at universities. And to the extent we can make more of them happen, I think we will rejuvenate the sort of civil association side uh, in a way that's extremely healthy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I thank you for introducing me to Michael Oakeshott. Um, and I, 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 it was great to... Uh, to sort of work through some of his his writings and allow them to challenge me and uh illuminate his voice is very distinctive and uh we'll we'll it include, is very distinctive yeah so we'll we'll include some links here um you know he promised me to to be to be more civilized and to buy more tweed i feel the need to increase the tweed quotient in my my wardrobe <laughs> reading michael Oakshot. um but it's, it's a deeply that combination of cheerfulness um humility and a sense of just let's let's all take a deep breath 
um, and um, and have a conversation and invite others into it. Yes, it's it's uh, it's, it's a beautiful vision. Yeah, it's a beautiful vision. So, um, well, good. So, thank you, and I look forward to uh, to future conversations. So, thanks again. Thank you so much.